text in the Pew Bible. It's found on page 403. Here we are at the end of 2008, and as we look back at the past year, I'm sure that, as it is every year, there were things that happened that we didn't expect. Who would have guessed that gasoline would go up to over $4 a gallon and then drop to where it is now? Who foresaw the collapse of the financial sector? If you did, you're in good shape. Or that everyone's retirement account would take such a hit. You've probably all heard the joke by now, my 401k became a 201k. I'd like to hear that one. And looking ahead to the next year, we must say that we just don't know what the headlines for the year to come are going to be. Life is full of uncertainty, but Psalm 46 faces this uncertainty head on. This was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. It's the basis of his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it declares that God is our unassailable security, whatever life may bring. Let us give heed to God's word. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, please give us understanding as we seek to understand your word and apply it to our lives. We call upon you for your help. Aid us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing that many of you felt the earthquake early yesterday morning, actually at 12.04 a.m. I leaped out of bed thinking that either our neighbor's house had had a gas explosion or that a car hit the telephone pole in front of our house. Earthquakes unsettle us. In fact, our earthquake was mild, only 3.3 on the Richter scale, no real damage done. By comparison, the worst earthquake ever to hit the continental United States was the New Madrid quake of 1812. It was probably in the range of 7.5 to 8. We don't know for sure because there weren't measurements at that time on the scale. And it was centered in what is now southeast Missouri. The quake was so bad that many people in that frontier area thought that the, the end of the world had come. It caused church bells to ring as far away as Boston. It knocked down chimneys in Maine, and it cracked sidewalks in the newly constructed Washington, D.C. 
It is a very disconcerting feeling when the earth gives way. We expect the earth to be stable. There are many things in life that may cause us to give way to fear. But Psalm 46 is a psalm that assures us as believers that even in the greatest uncertainties of this life, we need not fear, for God is our refuge and our strength. And as you and I wrestle with our fears, whether it is low-level worry of the everyday kind or whether it is high-level dread, we are called to learn to more and more face our fears in the strength of God's presence. Psalm 46 is divided into three stanzas, and we will look at the, these three uh, in three main points, followed by a brief summary of practical applications. Our first main point is this from verses 1, 2, and 3. Facing our fears in God's strength begins by recognizing the uncertainties of this life. Facing our fears in God's strength, strength begins by recognizing, facing up to, the uncertainties of this life. Psalm 46 begins with this mighty declaration as God, of, of God as our help and strength. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. But notice, this declaration is in the context of cataclysmic upheaval, verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear what's happening, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. In Hebrew poetry and thought, the mountains often represent stability, and are closely associated with the presence of God, with something that's very good. Psalm 121 is familiar to us. I lift up my eyes to the hills, the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Or we might think of Psalm 125. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. But at the opposite end, the sea often symbolizes chaos and evil. That's why Revelation 21, at the very end of the Bible, speaks about there no longer being any sea in the new Jerusalem. It's speaking symbolically of the end of all evil. So back to Psalm 46, what does it mean for the mountains to fall into the heart of the sea? Verse 2, it's speaking about the uncertainties and the evils and apparent chaos of this life. The waters roaring and foaming. God is our refuge and strength, even if the worst possible calamities come upon us in 2009. What are your worst fears for this new year? Maybe you say the same as my worst fears from last year. If you're a parent, maybe it's fears about your children, that something terrible will happen to one of them, some terrible problem with their health or uh, some awful choice that they might make or open rebellion against the Lord in some way. Maybe it's a fear about your spouse that out of the blue there will come that dreaded diagnosis of 
cancer or some sudden accident. Maybe it's the worry that your husband or wife will no longer love you or, 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 or will leave you. Possibly you're not married and your fears cluster around the possibility that you will never get married or that you will marry the wrong person. If you're a child, maybe it's a fear about school or about losing your mom or your dad or maybe that no one will like you and accept you. Maybe it's a fear about not fitting in or being made fun of by everyone in your class. Maybe your fear is about having nothing and being abandoned and alone in old age. After what's happened with retirement funds this year, most of us are much more aware of of the ultimate uncertainty of financial security. Or maybe your fears are about your business failing or losing your job or losing your health and becoming unable to work. You could be diagnosed with Alzheimer's at a young age or crippled in a car crash. Maybe your fears are about our nation or about our economy. This recession could turn into a depression. I know that the economic experts tell us that that's not likely, but it's possible, isn't it? Maybe terrorists will find a way to detonate a nuclear device or a biological weapon in a major city of the United States. Maybe the constitutional government of the United States will fail or our liberties will be slowly eroded and dictatorship or totalitarianism will come to the United States and to the West. Maybe the church in America will face serious persecution in the next decades. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. And maybe even some in this room or children of folks in this room will be called to be faithful unto death because of the testimony of Jesus Christ in coming years. Who knows? You see, this psalm is not telling us about God, our refuge, in a worry-free, problem-free, bad-news-free life. No, the earth may give way. The mountains may fall into the heart of the sea. The thing you fear the most may come about. But even then, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Facing our fears in God's strength begins by recognizing and facing up to the uncertainties and the fears of this life. But someone may ask, doesn't the Bible say somewhere that believers don't need to fear bad news. Yes, you're right. Psalm 112 verse 7 says it this way, he, the righteous person or the believer, will have no fear of bad news. He will have no fear of bad news. But why is that? Is it because he never gets bad news? I'm sure that many of you read the front page news story the other evening about grandmother Martin. What a great story that was. A wonderful and godly mother of 10, a grandmother of 44, a great-grandmother of 101 so far. What a blessed heritage. And she's related to a number of folks in our congregation. But by contrast, I bring that up because Job and his wife, you recall, were the parents of 10 children as well. But one day, they got bad news. Terrible news. All 10 children 
wiped out at once in this freak windstorm. That was on top of news that Job had lost all his flocks and herds, that's all his wealth. And then shortly after the bad news about the kids, Job would lose his health and he would completely lose his reputation in his community and he would lose all the support of his extended family and friends. Job lost everything except for his life and for his Lord. No, back to Psalm 112, the reason why the believer doesn't fear bad news is in the second half of that verse that I began to read to you. He doesn't fear bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. You see, it's not that bad news won't come. No, it's trusting the Lord. That's why the believer doesn't fear bad news. And we'll look more at that trust in our next point. But my point here is this. Recognize your fears. What are your fears? Everyone here struggles with fear in some way. Whether you regularly struggle with anxiety and worry or whether you are the most optimistic person in the state of Pennsylvania. It's not about personality. It's about spirituality. Whether you are young or old, whether you are rich or poor, every Christian must learn to face fear in God's strength and the beginning point of, do, of doing so is to recognize with biblical realism that everything about this earthly life is uncertain. Our lives are but a mist, Scripture says. You do not know what tomorrow may bring. The earth may give way, but God is our refuge and strength. Begin by facing your fears. Secondly, stanza number two, beginning at verse four. Facing our fears in God's strength calls us to actively trust the promise of God's presence and God's help. Look at verses 4 through 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Notice that the scene shifts here from the upheaval of nature to the ragings of nations and of war. Here the city of God is under siege, but God is the strength of this city and he defends her. The river of God flows out of this city. And God himself, we read here, dwells in the holy place. And no siege, no attack will succeed against this city. In fact, in verse 5, we, we, we read the key element here. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. That reference to break of day is probably a reference to the fact that normally the battle begin, begins at dawn. That's when battles in those days began at sunrise. But it is then, when the battle comes, that God will lift his voice and defend her. And it says the earth will melt. A picture of God's triumphant victory, God's judgment. It was also at break of day, by the way, that the most famous victory in Old Testament history took place. Pharaoh's army, remember, being destroyed by the power of God at the Red Sea at the break of day. 
And then the refrain comes in verse 7, and it's repeated in verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord Almighty, literally the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the hosts of heaven. It's like when Elisha prayed for his servant's eyes to be opened to see the army of angels surrounding the city that they were in. So the Lord Almighty speaks of God's power, God's omnipotence. And then it says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. The God of Jacob speaks of God's grace. Jacob was the least imminent of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was the least of the three. He was the deceiver, as he was known, as his name refers to. But God poured out his grace on even Jacob. God chose Jacob, and he is the God of Jacob, which reminds us of God's great and unmerited favor and love. So here's this refrain speaking about God all-powerful and God all-loving. He is the God who is with us, and he is our fortress. He dwells with his people, the city of God. But what is this part of the psalm telling us? It is reminding us of the promise of God's presence and God's unfailing help, even when the city is under siege. How many of you have been in a siege? I'm not sure. I'm not going to get many hands here. It must be a terrifying thing. Be under siege. Just think, what if you lose? You know what they often did to residents of cities when the city was lost? A terrifying thing. Facing our fears in the power of God does not mean that we will not experience fear, but it means that in, in our fears, we will turn to the Lord and to His promises with active, living faith in His presence. He is with us. David puts it this way. I like the way he says it in Psalm 56, verse 3. At a very trying and fearful time of his life, he says it this way, When I am afraid... I will trust in you, O Lord. Notice it's when I am afraid. There's the experience of fear, but what David's resolve, what is his resolve in the midst of this fear? I will trust in you. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. And he goes on in verse 4, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? What a tremendous resolve. David's speaking here to trust in the Lord in the midst of fear. What can mortal man do to me? David knew that mortal man could do a lot to him. They could plot to take his life. The psalm goes on to talk about that. They could ruin his reputation. They could betray him. They could make his life miserable. But ultimately, David's saying, they can't touch my life in God. God is my refuge. I will trust in him. Lord, I will trust in you. That's got to be our resolve as well. Pretty, probably many of you young people have watched the movie Prince Caspian over this vacation. just came out on DVD recently. There's this powerful scene near the end of the movie. The Narnian army has defeated the evil army of the Telmarines, and they have pursued them to the bridge of the river. And you see the evil army about to escape across this bridge. But out of the woods on the other side of the bridge steps little Lucy. Lucy, the youngest of the four children who have gone to Narnia. 
And Lucy steps out alone, this army about to cross, fleeing for their lives. And Lucy pulls out her little knife with this expression of complete confidence and calm assurance as she stands there alone. And there's this momentary pause in the whole action of the movie. The enemy army and the enemy leader crossing the bridge look at Lucy, this little girl, in sheer bewilderness, as if to say, little girl, do you plan to fight the army? You know, just mocking her that she would stand there. And the Narnian army behind them and the other three children look from a distance as well, as if to say, Lucy, what are you doing? Are you crazy? But just at that moment, the camera returns to Lucy, and you understand the reason for her calm and peaceful composure. For there standing next to her is the lion, Aslan, who's the figure of Christ. He has been with her all along, but now he has stepped out of the woods by her side. And all that Aslan has to do is roar. And he roars, and the water rises up, and the enemy army is defeated, and the battle is over. Doesn't it remind you of this psalm? Verse 6, he lifts his voice, the earth melts. Your worst fear may come true this year. But in the face of that fear, in the face of the worst enemy or the worst circumstance you can imagine, God will help you at break of day. That's the promise of God's Word. So actively put your trust in Him, His presence, His help, according to the promise of His Word for those who trust in Him. Our third point brings us to the last stanza of the psalm, verses 8 through 11. And that point is this, facing our fears in God's strength includes surrendering our desires to God's lordship and God's will. Facing our fears in God's strength includes surrendering our desires to God's lordship and God's will. At verse 8, we read this, Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations He has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the refrain comes again. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The picture has now shifted once more. It's a picture of God's ultimate victory and judgment over the raging nations. War has now ceased. But you notice, it's not a negotiated peace. It's not describing the results of, for example, peace talks at Camp David or something like that, which the parties come together and each give a little bit and they finally come to peace. No, there's peace, but there's peace now because God has triumphed victoriously. It's like you're walking over the ground at Gettysburg the day after Pickett's Charge. The battle is over. There are desolations on every side, weapons of war broken on the ground everywhere, utter destruction. And there's no doubt that Pickett's Charge failed. The battle has stopped. That's the picture. That's the scene that we have before us here. And in this scene, at verse 10, God speaks. 
He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Do you see what this command means to be still? Most of us tend to think of it in terms of a meditative kind of thing. It's not primarily a command to go off to a beautiful garden and to be still and pray and meditate on God's word. As good as that is and as much as the Bible tells us to do that kind of thing, that's not what's in view here. No, this is a command to the nations, to the nations that had been in rebellion against God and besieging the city of God, a command to the nations to be still to lay down their arms, their weapons, to bow in humble submission because God has triumphed, to bow before His exalted glory and His sovereign rule of their lives, that He is the King of all, to know and to recognize that the Lord, He is God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. Every believer in Jesus Christ has bowed in submission to the Lordship of Christ over his or over her life. That's part and parcel of genuine faith and repentance, of coming to the Lord initially and giving your life to him. And if that's not true for you, if you haven't bowed before the lordship of Christ, if you haven't obeyed this command initially to be still and know that he is God, then he is calling you this morning to lay down the weapons of your warfare, so to speak, to bow before him to trust in Jesus Christ and what he came to do in his death on the cross, to give Jesus Christ your life. Say, Lord, I am no longer the master of my life. I give you my life. I bow before you. And then we who were once enemies, whether we thought much about it or not, that we were enemies of God, we who once opposed God's lordship, whether we actively did that or whether we just passively did that by not recognizing the fact that He is our Lord, now we who have done that, we have given Him control of all that we are, all that we do, all that we think, all that we even desire. That's what the Lordship of Christ means. It permeates to everything that you and I are if we belong to Him. And this is where we come back to the issue of our fears. What are fears? One helpful and very biblical way to look at fear is this. Our fears are the flip side of our desires. We can talk about fears, but we can talk also about desires. They're the opposite sides of the same coin. If I fear dying, I desire to keep living, right? If I fear bad health, I desire good health. If I fear never getting married, I desire to get married. If I fear what people may think of me, then I desire people to think well of me and to accept me and to approve of me. If I fear not being in control, then I desire being in control. If I fear my spouse may leave me, then I desire that my spouse will love me and be faithful to me. See, that's the way we can think about this. Are these desires all wrong? No. Many of our desires are right and appropriate and good in their place. But here's the key. As long as our desires are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's the issue here. Yes, it's true that some desires are always wrong and 
We need to turn away from them. But many desires are good, and they only become sinful when they come before God in our lives. Is it wrong to want your spouse to love you or to want your children to grow and succeed and thrive? Is it wrong to want people to think well of you or to want to have a good job and to succeed financially and to be able to provide for yourself materially and provide for your family? No, none of those things is wrong as long as the desires remain subjected to God's will and to the desire for God's glory in our lives, that God would be exalted in our lives. As long as we can be still, according to verse 10, and know that He is God. In fact, think about this, you and I can't stop desiring. We can't stop ourselves. That's how God made us. But our highest desire must be knowing Jesus Christ and treasuring Him and treasuring His love and His grace. And then, when we desire that rightly, then every other desire will find its proper place in our hearts. And, of course, that's a lifelong battle and warfare, isn't it, by the power of the Spirit. So, to face your fears, you have to face your desires, And to trust God in your fears calls you to surrender to God your desires. Not to stop desiring, but to give your desires to God and to leave the results with Him. You may get the worst possible news, but even then you can say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What an example, isn't that, of desire submitted to the lordship of God in our lives. You know, I've been watching bits and pieces of some of the college football bowl games this week. Maybe you've seen some of those. I saw the end of the West Virginia uh, UNC game yesterday. What a great and exciting conclusion to a game. But I watched those games with absolutely no fears, no anxieties, no worries. There wasn't an ounce of worry. Why? because I didn't have any desire associated with either of those teams. just was watching it for the fun of it. I didn't really care. So there wasn't any fear because there wasn't any desire. Now, that's, some of you know me know that won't be that way with the Penn State game New Year's Day. It really meant nothing to me who won. But I know of folks who can't even watch their favorite team play. They can't watch it. Why? Because it causes them too much angst and anxiety. Why? Because their desire for victory is so strong. Do you want to know where your desires may not be submitted to Christ? One possible way is to look at your fears. Examine your fears. Fears reveal desires. And then, when you see what they are, submit those desires in prayer to Jesus Christ. And do that over and over again as you grow in Christ, trusting in God's presence and God's help if and when those desires are not met or not met as you might have hoped that they would be met. It's all part of being still and knowing that He is God. And this brings me to a brief word of practical application to us. There's a great article by Andrew Sell in the Journal of Biblical 
counseling in which Mr. Sell sets forth a biblical framework for facing fear. And he has five brief, memorable points, which I think are very helpful. And you may even want to jot these down in your bulletin to think about for the next time that you find yourself wrestling with worry or fear. Just five very brief summary points covering some of what I've said here, but some of what I haven't said here. The first is this, name your fear. Name your fear. Face it down. If you're afraid of the monster under the bed, look under the bed. Fear is bound up with our thought life. Don't just avoid and push the fearful thoughts away without confronting them. Name your fear. Number two, reverse your fear. Reverse your fear. See the desire on the other side of your fear. This is what we just talked about. Figure out what you want so much that causes you to be afraid. Reverse your fear. Number three, pray. Pray about your desires. Biblical prayer brings our desires to God, to the Father who delights to give his children good things, to the Father who truly loves us and knows what is best for us in the most profound and eternal way. Spread before your Lord your desires. Pray. Number four, surrender. Surrender your desires. This is a crucial point. We've talked about this as well. You have prayed for your greatest desires, which have driven your fears. Now, release your desires. Give them to your Lord. Now our desires become a minor theme in the grand theme of God being glorified in our lives. Whether we live or die, may his name be praised. And thanks be to God, we need not fear even death because Jesus came and triumphed over death itself. And number five, love. Love God and others. We didn't have time to go into this point, but it's saying that as we love God and treasure Jesus Christ, and as that love overflows in love to others, fear will give way to love. Perfect love, 1 John says, cast out out fear, and God's love poured out into our hearts in the gospel overflows to others around us. So we no longer live self-centered, self-absorbed, fearful lives about what's going to happen to me, but we are loving others because, first and foremost, we are loving the Lord. So those five points, name the fear, reverse the fear, pray, surrender, love. There's an interesting sidebar to the New Madrid earthquake of 1812. At the very time this massive earthquake occurred, the very first steamboat on the Mississippi was making its maiden voyage down the Mississippi to the Gulf. The steamboat's pilot was Nicholas Roosevelt, an early relative of Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt. And Nicholas's wife, Lydia, and their newborn son were also aboard this steamboat. And they happened to be navigating the Mississippi in the very area of the earthquake when it occurred. And for a time, because of the force of the convulsions of the earth, the Mississippi River ran upstream. Interesting historical fact, isn't it? But as it turned out, the steamboat, because of its size and because it was on water and not on earth, not on land, the steamboat did very well. It was, in actuality, about the safest place to be in that area if you're going to be there. But what a time for a maiden voyage to take place. So think of your life on the river of life, so, so to speak, 
with an earthquake that could happen around you at any time. It could happen this year. But your life is hidden in Christ if you belong to him. He is your refuge. Think of it this way, your steamboat. And when the earth gives way, you need not give way to fear. He is your strength and ever-present help in trouble. Let us pray. Father, we stand amazed at your glory and grace revealed in Jesus Christ. God become man. Come to deliver us from our greatest fear of all, the fear of death. Come to give us eternal life that we can rejoice in you always and give praise to you no matter what life may bring, trusting in you, resting in your everlasting arms, looking to you as our rock. We pray that you would help us to have greater faith, to see things unseen, to walk with you in the year to come. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.